Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We are continuing our look at the book of Romans under this theme, In the Grip of Grace, celebrating once again the great joy we have in the way our Heavenly Father loves us. Here's the beauty. God doesn't just love us in words, but he loves us in actions. All right, I have to test you a little bit this morning. Wondering how many of you have ever heard of the man on the screen, Jesus Garcia Corona? If you haven't, it's okay. Probably, if you lived in Mexico growing up, you might know who he is. There are streets named after him, statues in certain towns, especially in the town of Nakazari. Why? Well, Jesus was a train engineer. And here's maybe why you don't know very much about him. This happened in 1907, November of 1907. The train pulled into the station at Nakazari and... Jesus noticed that one of the train cars, the box cars, had started on fire. As he looked back to which car it was, he had a little more alarm in his mind because it was the car that was loaded with dynamite. Jesus acted pretty quickly. He got back on the train, pulled out of the station, and drove the train as far away from town as he could get it. He made the ultimate sacrifice. Because when the train exploded, no one was harmed. No one except for Jesus, who was driving the train. Maybe it's not a mistake that the man's name was Jesus. Because the Bible certainly reveals another Jesus to us that you know well. A Jesus who was willing to give up his own life, not for a town of people, but for an entire world of sinners. Again, we marvel at what God has done for us. And that's the goal of Paul's words today to us in Romans chapter 5, to marvel at God's grace to us and how we live in the grip of that grace. Today, we'll take a look at, in these terms, what a God we have. It's particularly highlighted in the fact that God knows our condition. He understands who we are by nature. And yet it didn't stop God from demonstrating his love in an amazing way. Will you listen with me again to verses chap of chapter 5, verses 6 to 7? Paul writes this, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. We read a little bit earlier, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and it's a beautiful exposition that Paul lays out of the peace that we have through the forgiveness of sins and the hope with which that peace fills us. Paul's not done explaining how that works, and so in the further explanation that he gives, it's almost striking to hear the words that he uses to describe our natural condition because we hear those words and think maybe our situation should be Hopeless, anything but hopeful. Did you catch some of the words in those couple verses that Paul used to describe us? The very first word that he used to describe us in verse 6 is powerless, while we were still powerless. I hope this has happened to more people than just me. 
but I can't tell you how many times I've been trying to charge my phone or my laptop, and for some reason it won't charge, and then I finally realize that while it's plugged into the device, the cord is not plugged into the wall. Right? Anybody else? Okay, just a couple. All right, maybe it's just me. Yeah, it has to be plugged in the wall, right? That's the idea of the word powerless. You have no power unless you're connected to a power source. And that's us. We have no strength. We have no ability to change our sinful condition. And Paul doesn't stop there. The next word he chooses is the word ungodly. Very simply, we can't measure up to the holy demands that God makes of each one of us. When God asks us to be perfect, we can't. And again, that puts us at odds with God. And then in verse 8, which we'll get back to in a few moments, he lays it on the line. Paul simply says that we are sinners. Sinners who fall far short of that glory of God. Sinners who have to wonder, how is it? How is it that we are in the grip of God's grace? Shouldn't these conditions that we have shut us off, cut us off from God and being a part of his kingdom? See, Paul's making a point. He's trying to drive home just how amazing God's grace and his mercy are. And and so he, he takes a little left turn, I suppose you could say, in the text to highlight this even more. He says, think about this. Why might someone die for another person? Why would somebody consider dying for others? Now, we can't go back and ask Jesus Garcia Corona why he was willing to drive the train out of town and sacrifice his own life. But maybe it's safe to say that he had friends and family who lived in that town, people that he loved, and so that was why he was willing to sacrifice his own life. That's Paul's point, isn't it? It's very, very rare for someone to be willing to do that, give up their own life for someone else. But but there certainly are exceptions to that rule. Paul says it this way, For a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. Well, where do we factor into that? Jesus' willingness to die for us. Would anybody ever make the mistake of calling you and me good by nature? Remember the words? Powerless, ungodly, sinners. You see what Paul's doing? Do you see how he's highlighting for you and me all the more the grace of our God? That in spite of who we are, that in spite of being powerless and ungodly and sinners, Jesus was willing to give himself up. Jesus was willing to sacrifice. Not just so that a town wasn't wiped off the map, but that the entire world could be saved. And that's the definition of grace. That's something unmerited, unearned, that God gives us as a free gift through our Savior, Jesus. God knows our condition, and he saved us anyway. Another test for you this morning. How many of you, and no no hands, you don't have to raise your hands, just curious, how many of you remember this Bible character? Mephibosheth. Maybe? Probably not something that gets taught very often in Sunday school. He has one chapter and one verse of the Bible dedicated to him. So I will tell you this, if you would like to read about him later this week, 2 Samuel chapter 9 is the chapter about him. And then if you back up to chapter 4, there's one verse in parentheses in 2 Samuel chapter 4 about this man, Mephibosheth. 
But I want to tell you about him because he, it's a good, highlights a really interesting point. So I got to take you back to the time of the kings in Israel. You might remember when Israel asked for a king, God finally gave in and gave them the king that they wanted. And the first king of Israel was a man by the name of Saul. Yes, yeah, some of you are nodding your heads. Yep, you remember that. That's good. Saul started his reign very well. And then gradually things got worse until God anointed a new king who wasn't going to be king for several years. But this name, I'm pretty sure you remember. Do you remember King David? King David, right? So King David was the second king of Israel. Now, Saul had a son by the name of Jonathan. And Jonathan and David were extremely close friends to the point that Jonathan was willing to put his own best interests on hold. He could have been the next king if it had been passed from family to family. But instead, he stood before Saul when Saul wanted David dead and he defended him. In effect, Jonathan saved David's life. Well, it took a few years but Saul and his sons all died in battle against the Philistines. And David, just as God said, took over as king in Israel. And David thought to himself, is there anybody left? Is there any descendants of my good friend Jonathan's family still around? And he found out about this man, Mephibosheth. There are some unique circumstances surrounding why Mephibosheth was still alive. And that takes you back to that verse in 2 Samuel chapter 4 where we're told that when everything was going haywire, when the regime was changing, when Saul was falling, well, they tried to hide the heirs of the throne. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. And as Jonathan's son, his nurse at five years old was running him out of the palace to hide him and she accidentally dropped him. And when she dropped him, he became lame crippled in both feet. And so for the past 20 years, he had been living a fairly impoverished life until David came along. And David remembered his friendship with Jonathan and in spite of the troubles that Mephibosheth had, David invited him. Invited him to come to the palace, to live as royalty, to have a seat at David's table and to eat there always. Do you see the picture? Isn't that exactly what God has done for us? In spite of our condition, God doesn't simply look past it. He goes even further. He eliminates that sinful condition by sacrificing his own son. The Apostle Paul said it this way in chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Boy, there's so much to take in in that verse, isn't there? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, if God had asked himself the question, are they worth it? Are these people worth sending my own son to die for? We know what he could have answered, don't we? We know we're sinners. We know we're lawbreakers, rebels, that we stand as enemies of God. Paul's going to make that point in a few chapters in Romans that we're actually hostile to God according to our sinful nature. And yet... God has an answer to that question, even if it was never asked. If somebody had asked the God the question, are they worth it, his answer is yes. Because God loved the world in this way. He sent his one and only son 
That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Christ died to take your place. Christ sacrificed himself on the cross so that you, are, you and I are invited to be with our Lord forever. See, that's what makes the change of status in our lives. It's Jesus' sacrifice that makes the payment that was necessary for sin so that we stand before God holy and blameless. We're not beggars. We're not waiting for things to fall off the table, hoping that some scraps come our way. Through Jesus, God calls you and me his children. We are sons and daughters of the king. And God takes that status one step further. He says that you and I not only are his children, his sons and daughters, but we have an inheritance. We will sit at his table, at his heavenly banquet, forever through what Jesus has done. The Apostle Paul wrote very similar things to Galatians, to the Galatians. And in chapter 3 and 4, he talks about the difference between being a son and being a servant. And here are a couple of verses on the outer edges of those two things, the bookends, I suppose you could say, that describe what he's talking about. Listen to these words of Paul. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. That's what it means to be in the grip of God's grace. It means that you are a child of God. You belong to him. And because you belong to him, you're an heir of life forever with him. Here are some things that you can take away from our sermon today. Number one, without God, we are powerless to do anything about our sinful condition. Isaiah wrote it this way, our iniquities have separated us, our sins have separated us from God. And without somebody taking our place, without somebody from the outside acting, we would be in trouble. That's exactly what God did through Jesus. Number two, Jesus' willingness to die for us while still sinners highlights God's amazing grace. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. Number three, because Christ died for us, we are invited to live eternally with him. Jesus himself said, in his father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, he would have told you he went to prepare a place for you. And if he goes to prepare a place for you, he's going to come back to take you to be with him so that you also can be where he is. I kind of struck out in the first service on this one, so I'm not even going to ask the question. I'm wondering how many people out there are fans of award shows. I can just confess that I am not, but some of you might watch them. Some of you might set aside some time when it's time for the television awards, the Emmys, or the music awards, the Grammys, or the movies, the Oscars. Maybe you're an ESPYs fan, all the sports awards. Who knows? Here's one thing I know about those award shows. They're pretty exclusive, aren't they? When people show up for them, there's red carpet that gets rolled out for them. All of the photographers are there taking pictures. We get to judge whether they're dressed well or not dressed well, right? All of these things happen, and it's such an exclusive group. Maybe I shouldn't ask this question, but have any of you ever gotten an invitation to one of those award shows? You see, an average Joe like me is not going to get an invitation. It's pretty exclusive company. You're sort of left out in the cold. Doesn't that make what God invites us to all the more amazing? It's not some fancy award show or swanky country club that we're looking for an invitation to, but an eternal banquet 
a banquet prepared full of God's grace forever in heaven. And it's not red carpet that we'll be walking on, but streets paved in gold. How do we know? How can we be so certain that that invitation of God is for you and for me? God says it. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's your guarantee that you have an invitation to eternal life with your Lord. What a future we have. What a God. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.